Welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as our Bible teacher explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. Also, you can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, www.fbcaa.org. You can watch our services at fbcaa.org live or on YouTube. We thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as we open God's Word. I'm going to invite Jansen Lorch to come and read our scripture reading this morning. If you'd turn there with us, it is in Acts chapter 1. Please turn to Acts chapter 1 and follow along as our brother reads. I just want to say before I begin reading, um, you could start all the way back in the Gospel of Luke and read through that and then just pick up here in Acts, and that's really what it is. It's Luke's continued story of, of the work of the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ in the apostles and the birth of the church. And so really you could just pick up from Luke and continue here in Acts as he continues that story. But uh, we'll, we'll start here in Acts chapter 1 this morning, beginning in verse 1, where Luke writes this. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from, in, from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication 
with the women in Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And... Let another take his office. Verse 21, therefore, all, excuse me, therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I begin this portion of our service with just a little bit of commentary about the uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday marked today, uh, the nearest Sunday to, what was it, January 20th or 20-something or anyway, whatever, 1973. Um, That tragic thing has been overturned that monstrosity of judicial oversight. However, that doesn't solve any of our problems, does it? Um, it is, it, we, you know, there is something to rejoice about, that some level of sanity came back at the highest level of the land in the court, but, and, and uh, some of the um, kind of work that has been done over the last 50 years to get that to happen has been tremendous, very difficult work. I would say uh, thank the Lord for those states in which uh, abortion has been largely outlawed. Uh, Thousands of lives have been saved in states like Texas. That's the only one that I've done any research on, but since the passage of that law that they had uh, have there, thousands of little babies' lives. Uh, Now, to me, Frankly, in a way, it doesn't make a difference if the uh, pregnancy was carried to term or there was no pregnancy to begin with. You know what I mean? Like with that law in place, if people are more careful about their behavior, that's responsible. That's good. But you'll never hear me complain about new babies being brought into the world because uh, that's what God set us here for in part. Exactly. 
Yeah, multiply. Uh, To not do that is pure selfishness for young couples who are able to have children. In fact, I'll just say this, uh, and uh, if you're one of those young couples here, don't take what I'm saying too personally, but uh, I've noticed that marriages that don't start having children pretty soon have problems. And maybe they don't have children because they have problems. I'm not talking about infertility now, okay? I'm talking about people who decide not to have children because they have other things to do. They have other priorities. And so it's just an observation I've made as a pastor. And I get a little bit jumpy when a young couple gets together and they don't seem to have problems with fertility or desire for one another. And they're not having a family. So take note of that. It's natural. For, in fact, one of the reasons God made marriage is to have children. No? Yes? Yes, and every one of those children loves Thurman. And so the, so the more the better, as far as he's concerned. So, but you know, the thing is that the solution to this problem of abortion is not going to come politically. As we see in our own state, it just got, basically it got worse actually, for us, um, despite, you know, maybe protestations to the contrary that it's not actually worse. It actually is, you know, pretty demonstrably worse. Um, But we don't know how the statistics are going to go. We do know this, that the pro-life movement has made great strides in teaching people what is happening with an abortion and what it's all about, and, and the numbers have been greatly reduced in the state since the 1990s when they were at their height. So I thank the Lord for that too. But if we're looking to the court, to a pagan court for our solution, we're looking in the wrong place, my friends. If we're looking to a White House filled with pagan people, there there is no help there. There There is no help in the arm of flesh. We must rely upon the arm of the Lord our God. And so... What's going to solve the abortion problem is regeneration. People following Christ, believing in him, trusting in him, repenting of their sin, and being taught that you know, life is not all about yourself. Life is a, you didn't come here to be served, did you? You came here to serve. The measure of a man is how he serves, not how much he is served. The measure of a woman is how much she serves, not how much she is served. And the measure of a young person as well. I hope you're growing up to learn that if you're a youngster here today. Yeah, we don't take life. We give our lives if we have to. And that reminds us as well that, you know, maybe there are some couples here who say, well, maybe we aren't able to physically have children. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and we're going to raise some young children out of the foster care system, adopt them from a, 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 mom, a young mom who's uh, out of wedlock or something like that, and you put yourself to that task or you help at a pregnancy counseling center, you do whatever you can to try to help and not just say, you know, those people are, you know, evil, wicked people. Do something. Do something about it. Help, you know. So 
Uh, just a few comments on that. We know the scriptures are very clear on what li- when life begins. Uh, I mean, if you look at that Exodus 21 passage, it seems to be crystal clear that if a, a woman loses her baby because of a, a dispute that happens between uh, people, somebody harms her, then a life is to be given for a life. God says right there it's a life for a life. He didn't say a life for a fetus, you know, a life for a mass of cells. He said a life for a life. And, of course, he knew us in the womb. He forms us together. Do you think it's okay to take the work of God that's in progress? How do you like it when somebody comes and, and knocks down your card house that you're working on or takes your puzzle and takes all the pieces apart while you're in the middle of working on it and says fooey on it? I'm sure Karen would not be happy. In 25 seconds, she's going to hear, she's up in the nursery, she's going to hear that I just said that. <laughs> She'll come down in, in uh, great angst about the puzzles being destroyed. God is building a puzzle in the womb. You can't go in there and, and, and mess with his work while he's in the middle of it. I, of course, speak you know, in the spiritual realm here. You, I hope you get it. Don't mess with God's work, handiwork. My goodness, please. It's God, the giver and author of life. We can't take it away. So we're for life here. You know, that's what we're for. Amen. Not, not at all. It, you know, there could be one person like us and 99 against us. It doesn't matter. You know, and, and, and this, and I'm right on this one. And it's not just my opinion that that's the best hymn, Dan. <laughs> this is the truth. You know, so. Well, let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 20. I'll stop preaching. Well, I'll stop preaching that and I'll keep preaching something else. How about that? Genesis chapter 20. I initially thought, boy, I don't know if I can do this, uh, this whole chapter, or not the whole chapter, but just this chapter, because I thought, well, I've preached on this before, but it was actually, uh, let's see, 17 years ago. So I'm sure, you know, you're like me that you forgot, and so we need to go over it some more. But actually, there are a number of excellent, excellent principles in here. By the way, I hope you're a little bit more comfortable. Some of you may be a little bit warm. I'm a little bit warm at the moment, but we tried to make an adjustment to help the temperature. So if you are, I get a thumbs up from some of the most afflicted people in the, uh, in the assembly, so that's good. There, there's more work that could be done, but uh, there's uh, technical uh, machinations that have to go on to figure out what to do about that. But it's a little bit better, and it should, should cool down. Yeah, we don't want any lukewarm people here. Is that right? We want them either cold or hot. See, that's biblical. I just figured out the answer to that conundrum. But uh, um, what was I going to say? Oh, this is the only church in, where you have uh, wind chill inside the church, right? Yeah, so it's, we have a distinct uh, honor there, uh, unlike other churches. But um, we're going to learn a lot in this narration, again, about the failures in Abraham's life. We're going to learn about the threat that arose to the Abrahamic covenant in uh, Gerar, a Philistine city. We're going to see that a worldly pagan king rebukes a follower of God, which is a sad testimony and uh, happens all too often when the 
unbelievers rebuke and then have to blaspheme, not have to, but do blaspheme because of the poor conduct of those who claim to be righteous. We'll see that your sin can lead to the sin of other people, can cause them to sin. Do you watch that in your lives, parents and and everybody? God restrains sin sometimes. Other times he lets people just go out and, uh, and do whatever they please. And we learn a better way of handling sin than what Abraham did in this portion. So after the incident in Sodom and Gomorrah in chapters 18 and 19, Abraham goes on with life, so to speak, and resumes moving about the land of promise that God had deeded to him. And we see in chapter 20 the first incident that occurs. And let's just read this, or at least a section of it, and then we'll comment. It says in Genesis 20, I hope you would follow along with me as I read in the scriptures. And Abraham journeyed from there to to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, see, God didn't come to Abraham. I didn't read that incorrectly. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And and she, even she herself, said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. We'll pause there at verse number 7. Just like in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham once again misleads about the identity of his wife. And she participates, seemingly willingly, which... I can't imagine, ladies and gentlemen who are married, can you imagine doing that to your wife and your wife participating with you in that? Very awkward, besides being wrong and not telling the truth. It it had been his practice to do this. You notice in, well, we didn't read it, but in verse number 13, he says, uh, "When, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place where we go, Say of me, he is my brother. This was a pattern that they had. And he rationalized it because she was his half-sister. She participated in the lie, and, and he thought doing so would save his neck at least twice that we have recorded, but apparently several other times. That's just their practice, but it ended up being a great embarrassment. How do you like your greatest embarrassments to be recorded in the pages of the Bible? For everybody to read, yeah, ouch, that hurts. Uh, you know, even uh, events in his life laid out for us. Remember, you know, this is just kind of a basic teaching here. Don't lie. You're going to get yourself into more trouble than you bargain on. Live on principle, not on pragmatics. Live on principle. Don't lie. Don't be just pragmatic. It may be that this technique worked for them most of the time, some of the time. But when it didn't work, it failed spectacularly. 
twice in the space of two decades. So these events were separated by up to 20 years. Now, the person who is the other main character in this account is named Abimelech. He's actually not named Abimelech. He's titled Abimelech because that word in its components, the A-B part of it means father and the I means my, my father, and then Melech is the word for king. So my, my father is king. This seems to be a title. Now notice that this person is a king of a city or a city-state, and what, where is he located? Did you pick that up? He is a Philistine in Gerar. Now the word is used, this Abimelech word is used of him in Genesis 20 and also 21, and then it's used again of the same uh, title is used of a person in Genesis 26. And because uh, perhaps 75 years separate Genesis 20 from 26, I'm inclined to believe that this is not the same person in 21 that's, or 20 that's in 26. So that's why I say I'm pretty sure this is a title of a person. The latter Abimelech in chapter 26 is probably the son or grandson of the Abimelech we meet here in this chapter. Now, how do we know this? Well, because in chapter 21, Isaac is born. And then, do you remember when Isaac was married? How old was he? We'll get there, but he was 40. And when did he have his children? He was 60. All of that occurred, and then the children got old enough so that in the end of one of these upcoming chapters, they have the little interchange about, you know, you give me the food and I'll sell you the birthright thing. And so I figured they have to be in their, you know, late teenage years or something like that. So 75 years at least of of time between the uh, here has had to uh, uh, move along. So that's the situation. It seems unlikely that the same man was king in Gerar for more than 75 years, although I'll admit it's possible in the time here where they lived to be so long. Abraham lived very long, of course. Um, Now, Abraham was doing the same sin that he was doing before. He didn't learn his lesson, apparently. And that with his 90-year-old wife, who apparently was so attractive yet that she was desirable to this king. Even more amazing that in Genesis, uh, is, is that in Genesis 18, God promised what? She's going to have a child. By the time I come back next year, you're going to have a son. Which means that somewhere along in here, and she may in fact have been early on in her pregnancy with that son at this time the time when the husband is supposed to be most protective of his wife, when she's carrying little one. If I could say more or less protective, I'm not saying less, but I'm just saying very zealous to protect his wife from all harm that may come to her at that time. So what was Abraham thinking? I don't know that he was properly thinking. As I've said, and will say increasingly since I've learned this principle, sin doesn't have a rational explanation doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. But let us be cautious not to criticize Abraham too harshly. Why do I say that? Because you know yourself that patterns of sin are hard to break. 
you think, well, boy, he's doing it again. 20 years he's been doing this. Let me just frankly ask you, has there been any sin in your life that you've struggled with for 20 years? Your tongue, your eye, your thoughts? Just asking. (laughs) So we can be sensitive to this. Patterns of mistrusting the Lord are hard to stop. That's what he was struggling with. I mean, Abraham should have realized, look, I'm basically bulletproof here. God has given me a promise that I'm going to have a son within the next year, and I'm going to see that son live, and we're going to get him launched into life, and he's going to be the one who carries on the Abrahamic covenant. Some little king in the Philistine city of Gerar is not going to interrupt the plan of Almighty God. So I can be honest and tell him, yeah, that's my wife. We're together. We belong together. And don't mess with her, okay? Or God will mess with you, as we see uh, here just now. So Abraham was not trusting God nor his promises. God had promised to, to bless him, I think, protect him, keep him. He had nothing to fear. Sometimes we do the same thing, though, don't we? We might say, well, I trust God for eternal life, but not for what's coming at work on Monday morning. Why? Which is, be- which is bigger, eternal life or what's coming at work on Monday morning? You know, we must trust God in all things. Now, God uh, actually is very gracious to this Abimelech, and he protects him in verses 2 to 7. Now, I'm operating on the assumption that Abimelech already had one or more wives and that he was adding Sarah to his harem. This time it's not Pharaoh who was deceived, like in Genesis 12, but it's the Philistine king of Gerar. And in a stunning event in the life of that Abimelech, God appeared to him in a dream and told him that he had taken another man's wife. God says to him, this is wrong, and you are going to be punished for it if you persist down this path. So we remember that it is wrong to take another man's wife. It's often done today, however, but it's still just as wrong as it was back here to be done. And I could wish that God would protect every marriage in this way. Don't you? When somebody was contemplating an affair or fornication, if God came to them by night and said, "Mm -mm -mm, put it out of your mind, don't go there, it's not right, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 6, Paul admonishes the church, you, you maintain your body with honor and you don't cheat your brother by stealing his wife because God is the what? You remember? He is the avenger of all such people. That means you've got to deal with God when you do that kind of behavior. You've got to deal with God. Now, Abimelech protested And from his perspective, he said, hey, I'm totally innocent here. Now, in the bigger picture of biblical theology, was he totally innocent? No, because on my assumption, again, that he had a wife already, or maybe many wives already, he ought to have known that God's program was that you are married to one woman, 
A man and a woman leave their parents, they join together, they form one new unit, they are one. So he, uh, he had taken another wife, <clears throat> that's a sin already, but we're not dealing with that sin. Not knowing that she belonged to another man, that's a compound sin. Okay, That's a double whammy. Abimelech behaved as he did based on the lie that he was told. For them, see, it was in the culture, it was totally fine for a king to have multiple wives. So let's just suspend disbelief on that for a moment. It's, it's wrong, it's sin, and all of that. We know that. But he's saying, you know, this is our normal practice. There's nothing wrong with that. God, I took this woman in, in our normal practice and didn't know that she was married to this man. And so Abraham's he says, look, it's not my fault. Abraham's lie made it not his fault in that sense and caused him to sin and be on the verge of an even greater sin. He was doing something sinful, but he did not initially know that it was sin. He should have known that taking another wife was sin and shouldn't have done it in the first place. You know, that's an interesting principle there. If, you didn't, if he didn't do the first sin, he wouldn't have be about the compound sin. In other words, you don't get to the second level sin if you don't do the first level sin. Okay, Good idea, huh? Just stay away from it altogether. Now, God says such a sin was against whom? Abraham? <laughs> against thee and thee only have I sinned. We have got to see our wrongdoing in the light of the real offended party. Of course, there's all kinds of collateral damage when we sin on the, on the horizontal plane, but we're talking about the vertical plane here. Many of us are just far too two-dimensional in our thinking. We're like down here. You know, what about the z-axis here for you, you know, three-dimensional mathematics guys? What about that? Think. He's up there. I've offended him. Don't get into two-dimensional thinking. It's too flat. You need to add a dimension. Well, anyway, uh, what happens here? Uh, Abimelech in in chapter 20, verse 4, look at this. Abimelech had had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Does that sound familiar? That's the same exact question that Abraham asked to God in chapter 18 when he went 50, 40, 20, 30, 25, 20 all the way down to 10. He said, you wouldn't slay for the... No, he wouldn't. The judge of all the earth will do right. And so notice that Abimelech has within him a notion of justice and right judgment. Where did he get that? It's built into his conscience. God created humans to have that. And so that's why not all humans are as bad as they could be. Yeah, exactly. Thank the Lord for that. The image of God that's placed into man calls for justice. Even the pagan Philistine knew this. Not fair, God, to punish me for somebody else's lie. But God said, now that you know, if you persist in it, it'll be fair. Uh, So in verses 6 and 7, God agrees with Abimelech and tells him to restore Sarah to her rightful place, and the punishment that was coming to him, death, would be avoided. Did you see that? You're a dead man. And what did he say in verse number uh, seven, if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God says that uh, he withheld Abimelech from sinning against him. 
This teaches us that God prevents wicked deeds. He has control over everything, including over sin, whether it's permitted, to what extent it's permitted, when it occurs, how it occurs. We learn the general principle that God does restrain sin. And in fact, in, uh, that's a good one. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. I didn't think of that one. First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians tells us about the restrainer who will be lifted away, we believe, at the rapture when the church leaves. Then uh, all kinds of manner of sin will just unload on the world. Um, God intervened in this case before the sin turned into all-out adultery. And I want to say this to you as another of our principles we're gleaning from this. I want you to say, be able to say, honestly say to God, thank you when you restrain me from what I wanted to do. Thank God for restraining me from my sin. Pray that he will continue to frustrate your flesh so that you will not go down the wrong road. Ask him to do that so that you don't sin. Lead us not into... Lead me away from it because I'm so weak, I will likely fall or some percentage of the time I'll fall and I'd rather not go there at all so that the percentage will be zero. God limits the extent of sin in the world, otherwise it would be total anarchy. You realize that? When you see, like when you get rid of God's agents, like when you defund the police, which are placed there by God to restrain evil, When you reduce that, when you pull them back, when you make them hesitant to do their work, what do you get? More crime, more mass thefts, more murders, more rapes, more everything. God has placed them there for that purpose, to restrain sin. People complain, why are the prisons so full? Well, there's issues that we could deal with. But you know what? The prisons wouldn't be full at all if people wouldn't do stupid stuff. (laughs) Behave yourself, do something productive with yourself instead of selling drugs, killing people, you know, shoplifting, uh, gang activity, MS-13, all that stuff. Do something productive with your life, at least, if not Christian. Christian would be better. Well, the Holy Spirit is working in the church to restrain sin right now. And as, this, as the influence of the church declines, guess what happens to sin, you know? We decrease, they increase. We, we, this is the opposite of what John said. Remember John, you know, I must decrease and he must increase. Well, the church needs to increase so that sin will decrease, okay? Now, God doesn't always restrain sin, however, in the life of the individual. Generally is restraining sin and less and less as the times get closer to the tribulation because he tells us, Things will get worse and worse. Deceivers being deceived and and all of that. People being lovers of themselves and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But so God doesn't always restrain sin. He will stop at some point largely. And in fact, in Romans 1, it says sometimes God hands people over. He gives them up to their reprobate mind and he just says, fine, have at it. That'll just increase your judgment and so on. And it does. Harden the heart of Pharaoh and in the heart of, his, of other people. Interesting little side note, by the way, I was reading in one commentary. If a, if a man was married to a wife and another man took that woman on a journey, just nothing else, no bad stuff going on, that was enough to get that fellow in big-time trouble. 
because the assumption was if she's traveling with him, then something must be going on. There has to be something, some cheating going on. So they were pretty serious, uh, and God was even more serious. What was the penalty for adultery here? God says it was the death penalty. God didn't flinch at this. God said this. Not I, I didn't say this. I'm just reading what the Bible says. He said it to the king of Gerar. You can't just do that. So if that's the case, how serious do you think God is about marriage? Ooh, pretty serious. Pretty serious. He takes it very seriously. That's why rape, for example, in the law has a death penalty. You solve that problem right now, okay? Done. That person is not going to bother any other woman ever again. And that's a pretty good principle because she ought not to have been bothered at all. Her body, her integrity, her virginity is so valuable. To be violated is a capital crime in God's eyes. That's how God protected women. In Christian theology and Jewish theology, women were highly elevated. Today, I guess men can become women, and so the special protections that were offered to women have just disappeared. How do you think about that, women? Oh, it's terrible. Well, God tells Abimelech what to do, and then in verse 8, it says, Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told them all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham, you know, I can imagine, here's Abraham, like, blah, 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 what do I say? Uh, be, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused, God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. And every place where we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah to his wife to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked, or thus she was justified. The different translations take it. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife. So Abimelech rebuked Abraham. And can I say, rightly so? Rightly so. You know, the Abrahamic covenant does not elevate Israel or Abraham above reproach, above rebuke, does it? People who take that idea that, you know, you can't say anything to rebuke the nation of Israel are just simply wrong. If they do wrong, then they need to be called on the wrong. Don't, don't hear me saying that they always do wrong. Not at all. But he's called out here. Paul called out the apostle Peter. Peter wasn't, you know, 
anything special. If he did something wrong, he was wrong. In this case, Abraham had brought a great sin upon another person. That's right. Although Abimelech was guilty, who caused him to be guilty? Your sin can cause other people to sin. Abraham caused him to sin. Abimelech demanded an an explanation. Uh, As the king where he was dwelling, he was due that explanation, wasn't he? Abraham admits, interesting thing he admits, I calculated wrongly. I thought when I go there, there's going to be no fear of God there. No fear at all. They're going to kill my wife, or kill me to get my wife. But in fact, there was some fear of God there. More than Abraham thought pessimistically so. Where did, you know, what was he used to? He was looking, used to standing up on his hill under his green trees with his tent looking down on Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, huh, you know, there's the wretched hives of scum and villainy or whatever again, right? Uh, terrible place. No fear of God there. And that's true. There was no fear of God there in that place. But you know what? Don't be so pessimistic about the people around you where you're living. You know, you can say, and I know some people think, oh, Ann Arbor is so liberal. It's totally gone. You know, not all of your neighbors are just as bad as they could be. They may still have a little bit of fear of God left. You can play on that. I mean, not manipulate it, but use it as common ground between you and them. And so there might be more common ground than you realize. You know, the society does still think pedophilia is wrong, largely. Now, that's changing. You watch over the next 20 or 30 years, but many people still believe that it's wrong. Amen. Good for them. They ought to believe it's wrong, and a whole lot of other things, too. Abraham made an excuse then. She's my sister, you know. What he did is he made an excuse for his half-truth, that obscured the whole truth. MacDonald, in his commentary, said, when a half-truth is presented as the whole truth, it's an untruth. A half-truth presented as the whole truth is an untruth. Long ago, Abraham should have repented of his pattern in every place, embarrassing as it was. And even though Abraham had sinned, this didn't absolve Abimelech of his wrongdoing. I have to hasten on here. Uh, You know, just because somebody ropes you into something and they did, they did so by a sinful means doesn't mean that you're absolved. Think of a sinful, per, a sinful um, situation where a gang gets a young person to, to join them and, is, and lies to them to get them to join and then induces them to start selling drugs or something. Is that person absolved because they entered into that whole situation because of a lie? Not at all. They pay for their wrong and those people who lied to them will do the same. Now, I think Abraham sort of pinned some blame on God when he said, when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Mm. The reality is God told him to go to the promised land and to reside there. He did not cause him to wander about in some completely aimless fashion in the most dangerous of territories where he had to lie to protect himself just so that he could do what God told him to do. Never. Abraham should have said to Abimelech, look, you're right, mea culpa, please forgive me, I owe you some restitution. But even he did not do that. 
he showed immaturity in how he handled sin. How do you handle sin in your life? Blame your wife, blame your husband, blame your parents, blame your friends, blame everybody else. I wasn't feeling well that day. No, own up to it. Own it, as they say today. Show maturity. Despite all this, Abimelech was generous. I mean, think of how generous he was, very kind, forgiving. Abraham, stay wherever you want to. Like he was the bigger man in all of this, you know? Amazing example. Pharaoh in chapter 12 told Abraham, look, get lost. You get out of here. You blew it, man. No more in our land. Um, So verse 18 tells us that uh, there was a a kind of a a supernatural affliction that came upon the women of Abimelech's family and and, uh, servants and stuff. They weren't able to have children while they were there, uh, while Abraham was there, probably several months. And he's like, well, why, why is this... Why are we not having any kids anymore? You know, we had all kinds of babies. Now we're not having any. Well, it's because of this sinful situation. There was sin in the camp, like Achan. Um, So what happens? How do we resolve all this situation? Well, God tells Abimelech, look, Abraham is a prophet. Normally a prophet takes what God says and speaks to people, but now Abraham is going to intercede for people to God, going to go the other way, pray for him, and uh, ask God to forgive his sin. And this is a very strange situation, but God's favor still was on Abraham, even though Abraham, you know, muffed it, lost it, didn't do right. So the, de- the death threat hanging over Abimelech really in, uh, encouraged him to do the right thing, wouldn't it to you? <laughs> so he gives all these gifts to, to Abraham, and it's a little unclear as to whether he added a thousand pieces of silver to that or whether he says to Sarah, look, I gave your husband a thousand pieces of silver, like, worth of all the stuff that I gave him. And so now everything's cleared. All this is dealt with. It's like, a, it's, it's like this thing, I'm trying, I was trying to figure out what is going on here. Because in my mind, I'd say, Abraham, you owe me. I don't owe you. Like, you've done me wrong here. Uh, so, you know, fix it. You know, let him go his way or whatever. Why, why is Abraham enriched even more? Why didn't he refuse to take those things? Remember in ch- chapter 14, he wouldn't take the stuff that he recovered, gave it all back to Sodom and Gomorrah. It just had a, um, you know, gave a tenth to Melchizedek and all that. Why didn't he give it back to Abimelech? Why did he even receive it in the first place? I, I don't know exactly. Again, we're, we're, we're what? 4,000 years removed from this culture. It's a totally different ballgame than what we're accustomed to. Uh, there's you know, dowries and penalties and laws and all this sort of stuff. Um, So we we don't know for sure, but it does seem to be a a compensation or a fine for a wrong done, even though that wrong was under false pretenses. And the justification here of Sarah seems to be that, you know, she did do the wrong, but she she didn't like go all the way with Gerar, this king in Gerar. And so He's paying back and making the, the compensation seems to suggest that the wrong has now been made totally right. There's no uh, damage ultimately that was done and everything is back to the way it should be. That's how I generically take it. And so we learn a lot here as we close about Abraham's life and failure. Abimelech taking Sarah was a threat to the fulfillment of God's promise that a, a son would come through Abraham, Right? God was dead serious about his promise, as dead serious as he was about marriage. 
And he wasn't going to let Abimelech, a Philistine, mess up the promise that we're going to have a kid here to carry on this covenant. We also, as we said at the beginning, see a worldly person rebuking a man of God. And the man of God deserved it. You know, how many of, how much of our behavior causes the unbelieving world to blaspheme, to slander God because they see malconduct in the church, they see cover-ups in the church, in the institutional churches, in the denominations, in the Catholic church, they see all this stuff going on and they're like, we're better than that. We don't need to go to church. We don't do that stuff. Your sin can lead others to sin. Patterns of sin are hard to overcome, but God restrains sin and ask Him to restrain your own sin to lead you away from temptation. And then when you do sin, handle it maturely. Don't make excuses. You did wrong. Admit it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Word of God this morning. Thank You for how clear it is how it gives us a good example, good instruction, keeps our feet from the paths of evil. May it be helpful and useful to us, and uh, may you just bless that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I so appreciate when hymns give good theology, and I was just remembering, I thought two things here in this hymn. You see that Bible right there? Just picture that Bible in your mind. Carry the picture with you. The Bible is sitting there open. But if you're not a believer in Christ, that book is closed. That book is closed. Even though it's open, it's closed. If you're not a Christian today and you said, I've tried to read the Bible, please don't give up. Read it again. It is life to your soul. It is breath in your lungs. It is life itself. It is the power of God to salvation. But if, you, if you're not a Christian, the book is closed. You say, man, I can't understand the Bible when I read it. Well, maybe that's because you don't know the author who wrote it. That's the issue. Let us pray this afternoon. Our God in heaven, we're so thankful that you opened up your word to us who believe. You gave us endless hope and peace. Indeed, you are worthy to be praised with every thought and deed. Keep us, Lord, and guard our souls from the evil that we face. Even whether we're a believer or not a believer today here, Lord, I pray that you would restrain our sin. Frustrate every effort that our flesh makes to violate the Word of God until we come to glad, happy obedience to the Word when we recognize that it is not grievous to keep the commands of God, but it is life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good afternoon.